every time there's a streaker, Braden, I always think about you. And there were four <laughs> streakers at the end of that game. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Dollar coltman joined by Braden Dollar coltman and Elliot Tanti. Welcome back, boys. Uh, another busy week. We're going to get to a couple different things, each topic this week on a completely different subject, which is always kind of fun. Um, but before we get to that, how are we feeling? Uh, the two of you are uh, in Edmonton. The temperature's starting to drop on you, are they, Elliot? Uh, yeah, but that doesn't stop me. Ole, 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 ole. <laughs> And uh, Braden, how about you? You got your warm and woolies on? The flurries have commenced, and if the Oilers keep winning like they did tonight, maybe another flurry will commence. All right, here's topic one. All right, well, Elliot uh, teed us up there in the intro. Uh, the first thing we're going to discuss today is the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying tournament that uh, continues on. The last we spoke of it was after Alfonso Davies uh, absolutely miraculous goal in the, in the previous um, uh, stage of the tournament. And now we, we found ourselves playing some very chilly uh, Canadian soccer games here at uh, Commonwealth stadium. Is it still called Commonwealth stadium or is it the brick field at Commonwealth stadium? Exactly. Something like yeah. That. yeah. yeah. Um, we've got to get the sponsors uh, names in there. Correct. The Comrades. That's right. So anyway, Elliot, I know you were there long johns, I'm sure. And, and all, uh, did you go to the heritage classic all those years ago? And was this as cold? The heritage classic was brutal. That's legendary. Was like, that's like, that was like legendary bad. Like the heritage classic was so bad that the team was like about <laughs> to hit each other. It was like minus twenty. The ice was frozen. The ice, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the ice was too cold. Uh, no, but it wasn't. Um, you know, the weather wasn't too bad at all. Minus two, uh, not a lot of wind. Uh, I was up in the seventy-fifth row, so that was certainly a worry for me. Um, but let me start at the beginning. There is no question. There can be no question in FIFA's minds that when the World Cup comes to North America uh, in its next iteration, that the, Ed the city of Edmonton will not be ready, willing, and able uh, to be a host city. I mean, for 50,000 people to show up to a game on November, in the middle of November, minus two degrees, like you had to feel the energy in that place. And, 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 and I'm, many people saw it on TV. And, uh, and I imagine that they got a pretty good idea of what was going on. But it was electric. It was exciting. I mean, uh, Alfonso Davies' first game in Edmonton um, playing for the national team, there was obviously that sort of energy associated with it as well, too. But the place was a madhouse, and it was so exciting and so cool. And there was an energy at Commonwealth Stadium that I've not felt since the glory days of the Elks in the, in the late uh, 90s, uh, early 2000s. Like, the place was just bumping. And the, the, the diversity and groups of people that were there, young, old, people from, you could tell, from uh, all parts of the world, people from all parts of Canada. I heard multiple people talking about how they'd flown in to see these games. The excitement was palpable, um, and it was awesome. They have some work to do in terms of logistics and getting people into the stadium. I'll say that. But other than that, it was so awesome to be there. I was so happy I made the decision to buy the ticket. And it was just an awesome, awesome environment. Braden, I know you weren't there in person, but uh, thoughts on, on this weekend? I know they play Mexico, I believe, on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, continuing to, to plug along, they won the game. 
which is obviously the you know the the cherry on the top of all of the celebratory parts of having some home games here but it's more important and most important that they win as they're trying to secure that one of those top three spots to get into the world cup uh, next December. So uh, your thoughts here, Braden, as we, as we continue to see Canada do what they're supposed to be doing, they're winning, they're getting an opportunity. Obviously Mexico will be a tough game, but I believe Mexico lost to the States recently. So the Canada has a chance, don't they? Yeah. I mean, you kind of said all of what I was going to say in the, in the question that you just asked, <laughs> but it is awesome that they won. And it's awesome because this is a team that was above them in the standings and they've got a, uh, you know, a tougher task in Mexico coming up but uh you know the excitement that that was at Commonwealth Stadium uh, I would think was electric and uh you know I remember seeing David Beckham way back in the day when he came and played there was an exhibition against um uh the Whitecaps before they in the MLS and the place was it was it was really excited to have soccer there um so so I think it's going to be uh, another really great game hopefully it doesn't get too cold like they're playing on turf right it's yeah. not, it's not grass. No, it's not. So it's good. It, that cannot feel good. Like those slide oh, tackles and those, you know, like it's gotta be miserable for, I mean, specifically the players from Costa Rica, because I'm sure there's a handful of them that have never experienced this kind of temperature, especially playing it. So uh, <laughs> I, I think the favor is in, you know, Canada's uh, uh, game, but it'd be fun to see it again. Another just another game. Yeah, I think what's exciting for for Canada is that this is, you know, uh, men's soccer has been for so long sort of an afterthought. Obviously, the MLS has done well in some some of the cities that it is in. And that's definitely the true. But when it comes to international soccer, you know, I think Canadian um, football fans, soccer fans tend to, uh, you know, have to cheer for their ancestral teams if if they if they're not more recent uh, newcomers to Canada and they have some kind of alliances and I know there's always a lot of English fans there's always a lot of German fans there's always a lot of you know people who cheer for players so whether it's Brazil or it's Argentina or wherever it is around the world when the World Cup comes around you know you, you we have, soccer is the international sport it's the most you know it's yeah, the it's most globalized. played and the most yeah. uh, recognized sport globally and so there's always people from somewhere who who, who have some investment in it it's just really cool to see Canada start to get a little bit of excitement on the men's side of it. We've obviously had a, we've been so fortunate for now almost two and a half decades to be watching the career of Christine Sinclair and the, uh, the, the Canadian women's team, which I really do think needs a lot of credit for the growth of the game in this oh, yeah. country, oh, you know, yeah. more so than totally. anything else. Elliot brought up sort of the early foot, the, 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 the football uh, energy in that stadium in the late nineties. But I think even to the early two thousands, when they had the U 16 tournament here with those women, and you could just see the talent that was coming and sort of the beginning of what would be, or U 19, I think it was, but the, the movement towards Christine Sinclair's dominance and, yeah. you know, all of those young women. And, and that was, well attended and really exciting to see too. Yeah. So, but no, in it's addition, great. Ed, addition, Edmondson is a good the, the career of John Herdman too, right? Because now we're seeing well, an evolution exactly of that, it. and then you know this this roster full of just young young guys. Alfonso Davies is going to be a, a giant in this sport. But John Herdman also his capacity to convince players to come and play for the Canadian national team. Like they've just had someone come over from Nigeria now. Some incentive, um, and and there's some incentive around the team, and and, and I think a lot of that comes to uh, has to do with John Herdman's credibility but let's also talk about the role that he played in getting uh this game to where it was when i talked about that mm. when that uh 
that atmosphere and that 50,000 people. John Herdman was everywhere and has been everywhere for the last two weeks in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. He's done every radio show. He's done uh, like Oilers broadcast. He's right been at public events. He's been uh, talking to people. He's really become, um, you know, in the city in terms of generating excitement a lot of that excitement has to do with the passion and the way with which he's spoken about the game. Um, and, 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 and he's got lots of credibility because as Jordan, you know, as, he, as Jordan said, you know, he built that women's team and he's now, and, and, and he knows what that's like and he knows what, what, what can be accomplished. And I think there's, there's a similar excitement that that U16 or that U18 team, that women's team that came through is that this men's team, because everyone is still so young and they are so good. They are so dynamic they play a really interesting style that's like makes that, that's sort of South American, but has some European structure to it. It's like very interesting. And that's John Herdman. And that's, and that's the nature of, he, we're developing a Canadian soccer brand and a type of style. And I think that that's just so exciting. Awesome. Well, we'll wait and see how it goes for the, uh, the young men on Tuesday as they play Mexico back in Edmonton. And then uh, moving forward, the next set of games will be in January. So long way to go still, but huge optimism. And obviously uh, very quickly, these results are piling up for them and it's fantastic to see. All right. That's topic one. We'll leave it there. Hey, guess what? The ordinary podcasting network has a brand new show. If you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to enjoy the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Braden Della Coldman, who is one of the hosts of this show here, Hattrick, hosts an amazing basketball show with one of his best friends, Christian Steck. Together, the two of them will break down the NBA, news from around the basketball world, and get you caught up on everything you need to know. It's fun. It's fast. They have great conversation and banter. They love basketball, and you will love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts and you can also follow them on instagram at backyard basketball underscore podcast okay topic two uh, we're going to pivot again uh we're going to go to hockey but we're going to talk a little bit about some um uh, you know it's it's kind of been like the big story all week uh a lot of the media surrounding the game has wanted to dig in on it and have different kinds of conversations before i do anything else with it i do have to rescind but two weeks ago, I took my hat off to John Tortorella. Yeah, you give me that hat back, you moron. <laughs> um, He's stirring a, it up. Imbecile. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll, uh, we'll get to it in a second. But let's just start it off this way. What we've seen early this season is a continuation of a frustrating trend that I think a lot of Oiler fans and, and frankly, I think a lot of hockey fans are now starting to recognize where some of the best players in the league, and in our case, specifically Connor McDavid, seem to have a different rule book called against them. Uh, than than maybe some other players in the league. It's it, it seems to be a pattern where in the last three or four games we have seen blatant tripping and interference and 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 hooking calls, obstruction calls. Let's call them when McDavid is attacking in the offensive zone, um, predominantly tripping because he's been pulled down at the side of the net. Today he was pulled down right be, right behind the net, and uh, I believe in the game against the Red Wings he was pulled down near the hash marks. All three like blatant trips um today the stick literally broke between his legs of the opponent that had his stick in between them and no calls not on any of them um so a lot of frustration there obviously mcdavid has done his best to i think remain somewhat um um respectful in how he's he's dealt with it when he's been asked in the media he certainly hasn't gone off in any way like we've seen some athletes go off i'm sure he has some choice words for the referees on the ice we've seen that occasionally but obviously 
you know, he is where he is. Uh, both his coach and more uh, aggressively, his agent defended him this week uh, when asked about Dave Tippett asked, uh, was asked if he thought it was a trip. He basically responded to the question saying, oh, you saw that too. Meaning, of course, it was a trip. I'm glad that, you know, you could see it because if I could see it, why couldn't the referee see it? The referee, uh, pardon me, his agent then tweeted much more blatantly and much more aggressively, angrily saying, how on earth is this not a trip? This is ridiculous. And it is. Uh, it's frustrating. The question is, are we seeing this being called this way because it's Connor McDavid? Because, you know, he's going to draw, he'd be drawing play penalties on every single drive if they called it textbook. Uh, and if if that's the case, isn't that isn't that how it should be called? Like, where do you come down on this, Braden? Uh, so Jordan, you, you and I both have been referees and there was a very important thing that, that was taught, which was called, which was, you can't, you can't make a phantom call. You can't call something you don't see. So that aside, my argument here is, is it's frustrating as a fan to see this. It, it's so frustrating when you could blatantly see something happen, like, like a trip on Connor McDavid, when the guy's moving at top speed, and then all of a sudden he's on the ground and you don't see it. Something wrong there. McDavid, here's the, and then here's the other side of this. McDavid moves. I think, I think he's clocked out at like 41 kilometers an hour. Top speed, top speed. That's really fast. If something in an instant happens and you don't see a call. So if it continues, like if Jordan's scratching his head, but if this kinds of, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't see it happen in every game it happens constantly but not in every game okay uh well leave the referee sympathizer for a moment elliot uh feelings and thoughts on this one do you come down on the referee side of it or are you uh with the rest of most of the sports media in that mcdavid is not being called the same as everyone else well i i i, I sort of struggle with that personification I, I i don't think it's the necessarily the referee that's the issue here this is about league and league standard and being able to to properly articulate what a foul is in this game and what isn't and the problem is the challenge is what a foul can look like uh, it looks like can be different uh, uh, throughout the week and 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 changes throughout a season based on the severity of the situation and what's going on in a game you know, I do, I do struggle with this notion that people say the referees should they just be calling the rule book by the rule book and there should be no game management at all. I mean, when, when, when referees don't manage games, particularly in hockey, things get out of hand really, you can get out of hand really quickly and, and get out of control. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, there's, there's different ways to game manage. I, I don't agree with, well, we missed a call, so we're going to take a ticky-tacky call, which kind of yeah. happened, in, yeah. you know, last week. But I do think... You know, you can set a tone as an official to start a game, um, and 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 then and then set that tone throughout the game. The problem is is where we run into problems is that there's just inconsistency. So a referee or a officiating group will set a tone, whether it's maybe this is going to be a looser called game or this is going to be a more tightly called game, and then there's inconsistencies within the game, that game that's being played that cause major issues and then lead to to to, to challenges. Um, but this is something that the NHL seems to be the only league that really struggles to articulate its rules in a way that they can be enforced consistently. I would argue you know, the, the NBA is having an issue right now because yeah, they also I, just actually, changed yeah. some rules. So they, they're having a, they're That's having true, their actually, star players have issues with calls yeah. that they used to be getting. 
Yeah, I know. And I think that that's a, that, that's a good point. The NBA is in a similar space in terms of it's, a lot of it's up into interpretation. Um, but, but I think this has to do with just sort of inconsistency in terms of what a foul is and, and, and the articulation of that. And it's, and it's culture and it's referees that have been around for nine years, but that have built up these re- relationships with the rules since before that it's really complicated. And, 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 and by the way, I don't think McDavid doesn't get called because he's the best player and he's the fastest guy. I think you're more likely to see the others get less penalties when their power play is performing at the level that it is. And I'm just going to leave that out there because that's mm. a, that's an aggressive take, but I'm just going to leave that out there. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to bounce off that one for a second too. Cause I, I, I think there's two things from both of the things, both of you said that I just want to touch on one. I think Braden, the suggestion that referees can't see the call I struggle with because every single incident, like every instant instance we have seen in the last few games, I'm thinking of the tripping miscall in Detroit, the miscall in Buffalo and the miscall in Boston specifically. I guess there was a miscall tonight. As far as I was concerned, I believe it was a miscall. So there's a, that's every, the last four games. So to suggest it doesn't happen very, every game I think is not true. I think it is happening almost once a night, if not more, but in all three of those instances, he had the puck. So at least one of the two referees should probably be watching the player. You're saying it's hard not to watch Connor McDavid. No, what I'm saying is one of the two referees is to watch the player with the puck. That is where fouls are going to take place. Any foul that takes place off of that is just interference. The second referee further back should be the one making that call. So you can't tell me they're not seeing it because if they're, if they're not seeing it, then they're missing the entire function of the play so then we have a bigger issue with either the quality of their eyesight so. or their ability to referee <laughs> the second okay. part that i wanted to, to take take a beat on and then i'll let you get in there is yeah. elliot suggesting that maybe there it isn't about whether or not he's the best player in the league maybe there's some other element of they have such a potent power play and i think that there is something to be said for that i think that there there is evidence to suggest that there are a lot of referees of a certain generation, younger generation that have come into the league in the last decade, let's say, who came up under a system of officiating and education in officiating around game management, as opposed to calling the rule book. And what I mean by that is that we have seen evidence that there are makeup calls or that there are timing and how certain calls are or aren't called. We've seen this a lot recently in the playoffs where all of a sudden in the third period, the whistles just go away. And yeah. somehow that's something we've, we've, we've accepted in, in this game. But the, the, the whole premise of that is that the, now there's a subjectivity to it that shouldn't be there. Officiating by design in all sports should be, you know, non, non yeah. Um, yeah. partisan. It should be non um, uh, it should be constant. It shouldn't be subject. Yeah, it should not yeah. be subject to in to that individual's interpretation of the rule book. It's black and white or levels rule of book, it. Yeah, yeah, and the rule book should be called as the rule book is. And if the yeah. and if 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 the result of that is a game that is harder and harder to watch, then you have to ask yourself where do we make the change? If the question is if every single time you're saying Connor robot McDavid referees? is obstructed. No, what I'm saying is if every single time McDavid is obstructed, you actually called it. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. There might be 30 penalties in that game. That's an incredibly difficult hockey game to watch. The question here is, are we asking our referees to manage the games for the purposes of entertainment or are we asking them to call the rule book? Then the question is, <laughs> is the referee the problem or are the way the players are playing the problem and the players, the way the players are playing, isn't going to change until they're penalized. Yeah. 
for that. Do you know what I'm saying? So we have to think about what part of the game do we want to change here? And in my opinion, when I see the best player in the world, and it's not just McDavid, it's, it, there are examples of this across the league of some of the other elite players who are making scoring chances happen with their feet yeah. are being prevented from getting those scoring opportunities okay. to the net because of tripping or obstruction. Then I want the league to jump in and make a change to how, how that, okay. how that functions. Okay. So how long has this been going on though for how can't you argue that this has been going on forever? Referees have always made calls. They've always changed the way. Like, are you saying that it should be, I mean, obviously it should be better. It, like in terms of the, the way that, uh, the, you know, the statistics on what call is, is accurate or not. Yeah. Um, I guess my, yeah. I mean, cause then the opposite of all of this is does Connor McDavid take on education from Alfonso Davies and learns how to, you know, make a flop like a soccer player to no, really then he'll be called that, for diving, which exactly. we saw the other night too, which is a rule. So right. embellishment, embellishment, yeah. which we did yeah. see the other night from Tony D'Angelo, like him or hate him. It was clearly embellishment. Right. Yeah. And, there's, and there's a penalty there. I think the point, Jordan, you make around do we want 30 penalties in the game or not is a good one. <clears throat> I think, and, and if you were to accurately call the rule book, that would certainly be the outcome to start. But oh, yeah. I think if, you, if you're talking about your second point, which is like, how do we adjust players' behavior? Well, when coaches start benching players because they continually end up in the boxes or, um, uh, and, and referees continue to be consistent with their calling throughout, then you'll start to see that number drop. Are you ever like there's, and so I think the, the problem is what the NHL has done is just like they did this year. They pick one specific thing. What was in the past? Cross-checking. Hooking, cross check. This year it was cross checking, right? In years previous, it's been the slash Slashing. on the hands, Yeah. you know, and, and they're saying this year, this is an area of focus for us as an officiating group. And all through preseason and all through the first five games of the regular season, cross-checking or slash to the hands or whatever it is, that certain thing is this year is the priority. And you get a bunch of ticky-tacky calls on that. And, and, and we're improving the game for the better in a gradual way. Um, but, you know, we got to 50, you know, 14 or 14, 15 games. I saw some pretty, uh, pretty old school cross-checks in the game tonight between St. Louis and Edmonton. It, you know, it falls away. The issue has always been around consistency. And I think you can't, expect change unless you do things consistently. Um, and and it, as I said, sort of in the first part, it falls away throughout the season. And then as you said, Jordan, the play, the play, only way to get a penalty in the playoffs is to draw blood with your stick on someone's face. Cause most high stick calls don't even get called. It seems like, or to lift the puck over the ice in your own zone. Those are really the only, because no, you, have they to are be, hard, you have to be a shade sh- they, short of they, murdering the guy. They are hard sort of yeah. rules with like, where it's yeah, like yeah. very definite in terms of like your stick yeah. hit him in the face <laughs> and he bled, you shot the puck. It went out of the zone. Yeah. You know, yeah, like we don't like want to fuck up in the playoffs. Yeah, so yeah. We'll just, we won't call anything. We won't call. We can't anything, fuck so. up that way. But, but you know, and, 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 and I think that that is sort of funny in this, yeah. in this sense. And I don't, but I think what you're asking for is probably too extreme Jordan, but it might be the only solution. The other thing, I just want to put this out to you guys as a question this is hockey is a lot better in terms of the obstruction stuff and the tripping and the holding than it was when we were kids watching hockey growing up. Oh. So have they not, do we not want to commend the NHL in some ways for having done some of this better? Well, and maybe it's just, it's, there. it's too gradual than what we want, but that, that it has been a gradual increase. Jordan's going to say commend, commend the NHL. Well, I think it, it, you're right in one part of it. I think we came out of a lockout 
the the the, the lockout that took out an entire season, as I recall. Yeah. When they came back from that in what 05 or something, there was a real push towards the removal of obstruction penalties, right? So obstruction hooking and all of those kind of things became really heavily enforced. Well, and I do think it, it it shifted a lot in how the game was called. That's true. But I again going back to this specific incident or instance, I think what's difficult for me is that two things are, are occurring. One, when you see a pattern of behavior from multiple different referees, it tells me that there's a, like a systemic issue with how these referees are being either taught to call the games or being told to call the games. That's right? And that's my issue. When like you look back at that Boston game, Slater Cuckoo's trip, where his stick got caught up in the feet of, a, of an opponent, I think it was Brad Marchant, both fighting for the puck and Brad Marchand fell down. It was called a trip. The same period, Connor McDavid is cutting to the inside uh, of the opponent's zone around the dot in an aggressive offensive move where he is at high speeds, high risk place. The defender puts his stick in his feet, trips him, and he slides into the post and then into the back of the thing. Two things are one. Number one, you've removed the, the scoring opportunity from a player, an offensive player. Number two, you've put that player in danger physically, right? And there's no call. And for, for me, I look at that and I just think, like, how on earth can that referee justify that? If, if he was showing both plays and was said, why was one of these... A, apparently and why was the other one well, i'm not? sure he regrets it now he must have seen these calls and been like he must have they must but have. to Br- Braden, let's be let's be honest it hasn't be been the official, same it hasn't been the same group every every game for the regardless the, that's my point if it's yeah, multiple sure. different referees also missing these calls or choosing not to call these calls as i would suggest it's or because all... they've been instructed to do so under some mandate of how they want the games called yeah. but again it's game management Timing wise, it's like, oh, well, Boston's down at this point. There's an opportunity for a call. There it is. And of course, what you do often see is you see that you do often see coming out of the next period, the bad makeup call, which we did see in Boston. Oh, for sure. But for the other way, just to say that it happens all the time after four games. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you go back and if you go back and look last year, Mm. I, I would, I would bet you that the number of scoring chances Connor McDavid had that were limited by some type of obstruction, hooking or tripping, contrasted to the number of penalties that were drawn on those plays by Connor McDavid, you would see a dramatic difference. This is a very specific statistic. It is. (laughs) But the point being, when you are that good, yes, you have to expect some level of obstruction on every single play. That's the truth. I I accept that, that argument. However... He's real fast, man. He's yeah. real fast. I sometimes he scores and I didn't even see it happen. Oh, it doesn't even make any sense. Uh, yeah. All, all of a sudden he was through either six change guys the, on the rules ice. or call the rules as they are. That's my I, argument. I, I think that that's totally fair. I, I, here's an interesting. <laughs> so here's the funny thing. You know, there's that amazing goal that Connor McDavid scored against New York, right? I haven't seen it yet. Obviously, no, yeah, no one's seen it. Obviously, um, you know, there was an interesting t- statistical breakdown on that play. Obviously, no one in that 
um, play from New York uh, committed a penalty, which might have been a problem, you'd think, uh, because he embarrassed four players. But actually, yeah. statistically speaking, Connor McDavid's shooting at 17%. The Edmonton Oilers' power play is about 40%. So for them, there was it was a better chance for them just letting Connor McDavid walk in and try and shoot at 17% rather than putting him on the power play for 40%, which maybe speaks to... Wow. Why where he's not, the Oilers aren't getting the calls that they usually get. Uh, I know one of Braden's favorite coaches for quotes in the league is Paul Maurice in Winnipeg. And he was oh, yeah. asked after that New York game, how would you have defended that play or asked your defenseman to defend the play? He says, I don't know, tackle him. Because <laughs> um, that's just the truth of it. The last piece of this I, I did want to throw out there because I, I teased it at the beginning. Uh, a, a big part of the criticism I think that's come McDavid's way here is there's already this suggestion that he's sort of whining too much about this or complaining too much about this and all of these things. And I mean, John Tortorella was the one of the more uh, retweeted examples of this where he basically said, you know, oh, you know, you can't just be a, a, a crybaby. You got to you got to suck it up and, and, and take it. And if you get tripped, whatever. You, but if you keep complaining to the referees, you're just never going to get the call, which either says one of two different things that he knows that referees make subjective calls based on whether or not their feelings are hurt or he's being the old school type of hockey coach that he's known to be, which is to suggest that, Oh, you should just shut up and play. Um, But do you think McDavid (laughs) and the, do you think McDavid and the Oilers need to just accept this is the way it is and not sort of say anything about it or do they need to continue to complain about it even to the point where maybe they suffer a fine or some type of retribution from the league to make their point let me add them let me add them <laughs> well i i think that this has been a point of conversation at edmonton throughout the week i mean there's been lots of people advocating for yeah i i disagree with john tetarella not in 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 necessarily substance but but in in reality i think Connor mcdavid's actually been relatively silent about uh, the way he's been treated i mean he has conversations with referees on the ice, but he's not, and he looks back every once in a while, but he doesn't throw up his hand. He's not banging this stick. I mean, I remember Sidney Crosby at the same age at the same time, dealing with the same issue, being a lot more vocal, both on the ice and off the ice about it. Connor McDavid has been quiet. That's why, that's what I didn't like about John Tortorella's thing. I mean, I think this was handled perfectly via the agent. There was lots of people calling this week saying Tortorella needs to take a fine and say, or not Tortorella, uh, Tippett needs to take a fine and say something, or Paula needs to take a fine and say something right now. Uh, you know what they did? They gave it to they they gave the job to the one person that the league can't find, which is his agent, and he said something really direct, uh, and it co- they cost no one anything and got the same point across, which is you know to initiate these kinds of conversations around um, officiating. So I think they handled it perfectly, and I commend the Oilers and commend the entire group, the team. It seems like the team, management, player, and agent all came together and did something that was uh, that was smart. And Connor's and Connor's more. He he's more frustrated when his team's behind than he is when he's getting he's he's not getting calls. Like it, I I don't see him phasing it the way that you know it's it's let out to believe. So you think it's, it's just sort of overblown? The media is trying to make him into a bit. Yeah, more he's a, playing the game. He's a very yeah. he's a very intense player, and and that's why he's the captain of this team and the best player in the world. He's a very he wants to win. That's it. So if he you know if he's feeling he's not getting calls, well, he probably feels like he should be getting calls. Well, and, and inconsistent officiating isn't just a consequence of that Connor McDavid feels. That's something that uh, the, yeah. you know better half of the, every player, the top ten percent of the no, players no. in the league feel. So and it's not and, like he stops playing either. It's not like he just goes to the ref you know complain about this he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna tell them they're there to do their you know 
the 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 job of officiating the game it's no it's no different than in you know in baseball when this when pitches are out of the strike zone it's gonna happen okay i'm not i'm not sure it's quite that cut and dry but all right well i think that i think players are going to take them up take it upon themselves to to speak up when they they feel like the officiating is is sure i'm not saying like yeah no but i'm saying in terms of like where the strike zone is and if you know it's way out and they're getting strikes players gonna have you're gonna take issue with that yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, I don't think we solved anything, No. but we dug, all. we dug in a little bit on it. And, we, and as Braden said, you know, we'll wait and see it's still early. Maybe this is a trend that does have some form of outcome. Maybe some of the heat surrounding it does eventually seep up high enough that some conversations happen in the officiating side of it. And who knows, maybe we will have a game in the upcoming weeks here with 30 or 40 penalties and not because there was a line brawl. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. That's topic two. Do you or someone you know own a small business? Are you looking to grow or to reach new customers? Hey, why not let us help? Hattrick is looking for unique brands, businesses, and products to advertise on our show. You can find out how we can help spread the word about your business by contacting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All right, topic three is a special one. We have neglected, Braden and I, to record an episode of the Pit Stop podcast for several weeks, uh, schedules being what they have been. So unfortunately, we've missed um, the the beginning of the end of this awesome season from F1. So we thought we'd dedicate a, a segment here on Hattrick to it uh, to get us back into it. And then as we go into the last three races, Braden and I will... Uh, will be better at making sure that those three races are uh, have a dedicated episode for each one of them. Um, but let's talk really quickly about what was, in my opinion, one of the best weekends I've ever seen as a Formula One fan. And I think probably the best weekend of Lewis Hamilton's career. And that's saying something as he is a seven-time world champion, but he himself argued that he thought this was the best start to finish weekend he'd ever had. Um, so those who are not following f1 let me just give you a really quick summary of the weekend so we had something really special this weekend it's the third time this season that we've had a sprint qualifying so the the weekend Mm. schedule was shifted a little bit we're in brazil and uh, on friday when they usually would be doing uh, two practice sessions they had one practice session followed by a qualifying a traditional qualifying um run so three three uh different qualifying uh, groupings each one removing five teams from qualification and eventually being able to set up the grid for what would be usually the grand prix but in this case they set the uh, grid positions for saturday's sprint qualifying so uh, coming into the weekend hamilton who is uh, trailing um red bulls uh, max verstappen for uh the championship uh took his fifth engine of the season his fifth power unit change uh, and as a result, uh, knew that he would be given a five grid penalty uh, to start wherever he ended up on the grid for, for Sunday's Grand Prix. And that is um, we've seen most teams have changed their power units at some point during the season. And it's all about strate- sort of strategically choosing when to do it based on what course you're going into. In Mercedes case here, knowing that they had a very good overtaking course in Brazil, they wanted an opportunity to have a, a, a healthier and, and fresher engine than Red Bull. Uh, and they just dominated in a straight line uh, with this new engine. So they knew that going in, they had a five grid penalty spot, no matter where Hamilton finished. The goal was obviously qualify high and do well in the sprint. However, uh, he, he finished uh, quite well, I believe up in either one qualifying or was one or two coming out of Friday and then suffered a penalty because they had measured the gap in his rear wing 
um, which is used for DRS or drag reduction system. And he failed that test. So it was considered an illegal part. Uh, it was not designed that way, but it had somehow become the gap had become bigger than it should have been. Um, so the FIA punished him by basically disqualifying him from qualifying and forcing him to start at the back of the grid, 20th spot for the sprint qualifying. That put Max Verstappen on pole to start the sprint. That's Saturday. He started from tw 20th. The sprint was 17 laps um, or half, uh, pardon me, a third of the uh, Grand Prix distance. And I have to tell you, if you didn't watch it, I've never seen a driver dominate the overtake as well as Lewis Hamilton. He made his way, he made his way up from 20th place to finish the sprint in fifth. So he, he overcame all but five cars. The, the two at the front Bottas who actually ended up winning and taking pole for the Grand Prix and Verstappen were like, 30 seconds ahead of everybody else but he cleared everyone else except for Sergio Perez and Charles Leclerc he came all the way up to fifth which was an unbelievable finish so he finished fifth which meant he would drop five spots to 10th that's where he started Sunday but watching him overtake and overtake and overtake is just you knew going into Sunday you were about to watch something really really special and that's exactly what happened he moved his way up from 10th to fourth on lap one and ended up being able to chase down Verstappen and by the end pass him in, again, just an absolute unbelievable dogfight. Got all the way up to first. And by the end of the race, I believe he beat him by eight seconds. So Lewis Hamilton just dominating the way we used to see Lewis Hamilton. And as we only have three races left, just unbelievably exciting. So that is all I will say on this topic. I'm going to turn it over to these two. I know Elliot actually watched some of this race, which is exciting. I'm glad to hear that we've got you a little bit excited about F1. Um, is this not, does this not whet your appetite enough to want to watch three more races and see how this championship comes down? Max Verstappen still just holding a, I think it's like a 19 point lead. Lewis Hamilton now is within striking range of becoming the greatest driver of all time with eight championships. If he can pull it out, Elliot, uh, are you in? Yeah. I mean, I think I am. <laughs> I, I, I think I am. I, I mean, it, it helps. Uh, what was awesome this week, and, and, and this is kind of a dumb thing to say, but it really helps when the races are in the time zone, right? Or in a time zone that's, yep. that's legal. So, you know, waking up, you know, you know, knowing that I can watch the race before football on Sunday, and, and, uh, and I did watch the end of that, really helps a lot. Um, but I think that there's also, F1 has done such a good job of contextualizing the sport, Um for in in layman's terms for folks like myself where where this was previously something that was just like too much uh it, it isn't anymore some of that's the netflix show but some of that's just like you know you and brayden like caring about it and doing the show that you guys are doing uh and it being like a more mainstream topic of conversation on 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 sports local sports radio which is something you know where i get a lot of my information from here in edmonton as well um the but ultimately what this comes down to is that this is a really exciting end to this season. And probably, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I know that there's a long recorded history of F1 and it's been around for a long time, but this has to be uh, one of the closest like constructor races in, in a very, very long time. I mean, it just seems like you go through eras of, of teams and, 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 and well, their rise is gradual once they are uh, once they have supremacy, they seem to, to last for a really long time. So, so this battle between Red Bull and, Mercedes is is also contributing to that. There's there's value in that, and 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 there's value in that in that um, 
you know, one great example of it is the last race, the last lap of this race tonight, uh, the tire change from the Red Bull team. Uh, it wasn't Sergio uh, Perez. Yeah. 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 Perez uh, and, and his, his change to softs in the last race to get the fastest lap of the race. So he can get one point for his team, uh, which doesn't seem like much and would never have ever seemed like much in years previous. That one point is actually really valuable this year. Um, and so there's the added relevance, there's the excitement, there's the contextualization, and there's also what's always been the detriment of, ra- of, of car racing is if it's not a sprint to the, to the last lap, something interesting at the end of a race to sort of make you think. It's got a lot of things that are coming together. This is, I, you know, it's very exciting. F1 stock is on the rise and continues. For to sure. Be. Yeah. Braden. Yeah, I, just to jump on that, F1 stock is on the rise. I think, like Elliot said, the the access to this sport has become globalized in a way that I think we talked about in other, uh, you know, in our past or our previous segment here uh, with soccer, just its its dominance around the world, and also, you know, kudos to F1 for you know doing that deal with Netflix, but then also doing that, you know, getting getting the races into North America and, and creating buzz around it. Um, you know, they're doing that kind of work we talked about with John Herdman speak about all of this. And, and so it's, uh, and it's a fun sport. It's super cool. Right. So, um, unfortunately I didn't watch, I didn't watch the race today. Uh, I will regret it, but I will be able to watch some highlights of this dominant performance. I'm not surprised by Lewis Hamilton. He always seems to do well when he has to come from behind. He is, um, he's that kind of athlete. He loves that. Uh, um, I think he loves that. I think he loves that narrative. He loves that story. And he is that guy that, um, is, is becoming one of the greatest of all time. So, um, but the two things that came out of this for me, uh, that surprised me deeply was the FIA has so many rules to begin with. There are so many rules in terms of construction of the vehicle, driving the vehicle, track limits. Uh, you know, Verstappen had a huge turn that took Lewis Hamilton. It looked like out of you know out into the the side. There was no penalty for that. It didn't appear. However, at the end of the, uh, I think it was the qualifying when they noticed on the Mercedes with the with the wing was changed. It was Max Verstappen who went over to look at it, and he noticed that there was something wrong. Max Verstappen got fined for that. Yeah, I don't understand that. Car. Did they, so he got fined for touching the car, not for going and checking out. Do you yeah. think they, they would have noticed that had he not seen it? Yeah. So but he raced that's a great it. question. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, it, definitely interesting. So there's a couple of things I will just say. This is good because it does help teach something different about the sport. So there's, there are, there's a code or a set of rules specifically called park Fermi, which is that once a car has been set in qualifying, meaning it's engine parts, it's, uh, yeah. front and rear wing parts, all of its aerodynamic parts and its tires. Once the car is in race condition and has qualified, nothing on that car is allowed to be changed without permission from the governing body. So there are specific things, right. maybe like a reliability safety thing. Yeah, we took some damage here. We have to change this or the car could be in danger, all those kind of things. But technically you are to qualify the same car you're going to race. So once a car is in park for you can't change anything. It also means no other driver or member of any other team is allowed to touch an opponent's car in any way, shape, or form. You can't touch the tires, even to just check how well they degraded, because there's 
it's proprietary technology. There's secrets there. There's all kinds of competitive edges that those teams should be able to protect. That's the idea, right? And we've had lots of examples of this. One of the greatest violators of this rule over the decades has been Matt, or is, is Sebastian Vettel, who there is a, they played a highlight reel in today's lead up to the, to the race of different examples of when he has touched other driver's cars, including once where he once tried to roll a tire and accidentally pushed the, the car that was in neutral about 10 feet forward because it was on a slight hill. Like there's lots of examples of this. However, that is what Max Verstappen got in trouble for. Now, yes, right. Red Bull and Mercedes have been in a, a bit of a fight all season long about regulations concerning the tail uh, wing size of it. Amount of flex. Red Bull has been under scrutiny and has been challenged both by Mercedes and at one point by McLaren for the amount of vibration that was witnessed on a camera in in that in in their car in their car's construction. Last race that, Mer- that Verstappen actually won. Prior to the race, they had to uh, put like airfoil, tinfoil stuff on his car to ensure the integrity of the back wing because they were worried it was going to break apart. And there was no penalty at all for doing that in Park Fermi rule. So there's lots of these kind of, mm. like you say, it, it, it gets very specific and it gets very kind of detail oriented that can be frustrating, I think, both for a fan. And in this case, for someone oh, like yeah. Toto Wolf, who's running Mercedes going, is there not a double standard here? Well, the in double the case standard of what is they got punished for. Lewis Hamilton got fined rule. for unbuckling his seatbelt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and again, that and that and the rule, the rules, the rules, right? And you have to call, and they do call them as they see them. That's the problem with this one. There is a, there is an instrument. I believe it's thirty-eight millimeters round. It's basically a ball on a stick, and uh-huh. they have to be able to put it inside of that gap, and it cannot pass. Uh, like p- cannot pass through. The gap has to be smaller than thirty-eight millimeters. In the instance here with Mercedes, at one side, the left side of the of the rear wing, it did not pass through. On the on the opposite side, it did, meaning something was out of balance. They argued, "Look, these are the these are the blueprints. This is the design of our car. This was not an intent to cheat. Something happened here. We don't know what it is." There's no suggestion Max Verstappen did anything when he touched the car, but. You're right. Maybe he was already investigating it, looking into it. He was curious about it because there's something there, Uh, but we'll wait and see. Um, It did. It did also cause some great fun drama going back to our conversation about McDavid and about maybe complaining. Um, Toto Wolf, if you don't know, is the CEO and head of Mercedes racing unit. And he's an absolute just just amazing character. Right. He's this German stockbroker who left the financial uh, sector to become a, a the head of a, a the principal of an F1 team and he runs the the team like he like a scene out of billions like it's unbelievable just the the sort of pompous nature to this German you know almost oligarch but he's fantastic in interviews <laughs> and they interviewed him just before the race basically saying like how do you feel about this and he was like I don't know everyone's out to fuck us everybody's out to get us um, you know he was just he was irate he was angry he was all kinds of things and then when they cut to him after Lewis passed Verstappen he looked right at the camera and basically flipped them off was like fuck you we fucking did it don't everybody's out to get us and that's I think this mentality that the culture around Mercedes is they know they are the big bad wolf that every other team is trying to find the smallest edge against Red Bulls now trying to challenge the smallest technical thing because Mercedes has dominated for the entire hybrid era since 2000. Yeah. It's also Fred Horner. Like Fred, Fred Horner, Fred, is, uh, Christian Horner, Christian, Christian Horner. Horner. He is like the, he's a little weasel. He's in it. He's infamous. That's for the it. Red Bull guy, right? That's yeah, the Red Bull guy. Yeah. Yeah. So those two, their rivalry is what's so great oh, it's about fantastic, this whole thing. So right? when we're talking about accessibility of the sport, this is one of the things that I think then F1 has done really well is that if you really care about it, 
you care about the ball that has to fit through a thing and between <laughs> yeah. a wing on the side. And I Elliot. love you, Jordan. I Elliot, love you how bitch, much? But that is not why I'm showing up at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Right. 100%. To talk about the ball of that thing. But 100%. what is, but totally what is, to your credit, is the Christian, <laughs> is the rivalry between, between Christian Mercedes, Horner and Toto Wolf. Chris, yeah. yeah, Christian. And, and totally. And it's just so visceral in sort of all things that they do. And, um, it's what they've done so well. And it's, and I, and, and I think when we talk about contextualizing it, that's really what the Netflix series yeah. has done is mm-hmm. it's given a personality, even someone, you know, the other one, and, and I'm going to sound like such a cliche to you guys who are, who are much more invested in this thing, but even Daniel Ricardo's response to being disqualified because he was too swervy on the straightaway and is Yo, like, Max, yeah, Verstappen. Give them my- Max Verstappen. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or Daniel Ricardo said something. Like, yeah. Give them my regards. Right. And, and yeah, exactly. Daniel Ricardo exactly, has got exactly. this sort of like this sort of like uh but he's like, he's this handsome kind of yeah. bad boy, but he's got a personality about him. Yeah. Like he's done Ellen, you know, they've just done such a good job. Yep. No, it's characters, like bringing right? The minutia of what you were talking about totally. into, a, into such a, into such a more accessible place. And Elliot, I think how much do you want to bet? Too. How much do you want to bet Jordan's read the entire FIA rule book? Oh, <laughs> I, I would. Um, Cause how many centimeters was it again? The yeah, ball? Yeah, yeah, 38 millimeters. But the, but I, I that, never read the whole so rule book. That. I did real. It's I the did instrument. Read the... You know about the instrument. Okay. Well, this is because some of us, some of us watch the race on Sunday. Yeah. Some of us watch the weekend. Yeah, because the entire weekend is where the drama is. And that's where mm-hmm. all the excitement is. You have, you basically have three different days of three different things, right? There so Friday you get to watch them. Austin. Oh, totally. But you get to watch them tr- test the cars on Friday. They try different things. They try different setups. And if you're interested in the car technology, it's fascinating to watch, right? Because these guys yeah, have yeah. these, these 30 minute windows where they can go out and try different things, differentials, different brake pressures, different all kinds of things. It's awesome yeah. to just yeah. learn about. And there's great coverage. That is the thing I agree with you, Elliot. Like the, the 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 accessibility, but also the way the sport is covered. I think we don't see maybe a little bit in the NFL pregame is the only other example of like the kind of access that these guys have. But they have a reporter who literally can walk into almost any pit garage and just pick a guy at random and ask him questions. Like the access is unreal. And that is what develops those characters, the way the Netflix show does and all of that. It's fantastic. Oh, like, totally. You beyond feel that, like you're in there. Beyond that, where else? Like you can't, you're not hearing the conversation between the QB and the coach in the NFL. Oh, yeah, there is a conversation that's, that's going on in there. But that is it's happening. Like you yeah. hear hear the drivers talk oh, yeah. with their um engineers their, yeah. their engineers and then at the end of the game obviously or at the end of the race obviously uh yeah you know like total wolf was on there tonight and it was very interesting to hear his response and, and the celebration too but you get that it's very intimate it's very oh, yeah. intimate oh yeah 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 no and that's a big part of it too right there is a, the, and the i mean <laughs> let's the level the level that we're watching if you're just watching like the TSN broadcast that's one level but the amount of access F1 gives to their fans too for at, at a premium so if you pay for like the the pro account on the F1 app you can watch live telemetry of every single car you wow. can watch the same data that the engineers wow. are getting are you serious? how many revs per engine where's the heat in the tire where's the degradation on the track what? all of that information you can get because it's all that's incredible it's just broadcast live because it's it's just part of the sport every team has access to it it's not secret because it's there and so it is broadcast out every there. team Anyone, has do- information on other cars as well yeah because they have like the the information is being broadcast 
uh, it's part of it's part of the package. Total that's being presented. Just with his phone, he's just checking in on the telemetry on his hundred percent. Well, they don't. I'm sure they <laughs> they've got a thousand screens, but the he's things just, they're yeah. looking at on pit wall, oh you can watch basically, God. and you can start to see like, oh, yeah. actually, the durability of the McLaren engine is. You can see in a straight line, it does not have the same horsepower as uh-huh. the Ferrari, and that's why they weren't competing with them today or whatever. So again, the level of which is kind of to be fair which is kind of what i think the nhl is trying to find a way to do with these new microchips in the jerseys sometimes broadcast mm. teams will add it right where all of a sudden they'll show a replay and you can see Connor mcdavid's top speed because they've been tracking it live but they haven't yet figured out like the second screen like the ipad app you could have open when you're watching the hockey game if you are a big you know right. analytics walk or walk right. or whatever and you wanted that information and anyway anyway um, I see I think infrared, we... I think, infrared hockey. No, but even time on cool. ice and stuff like that. That would yeah, be yeah, interesting yeah. to watch throughout the game. Like Live that would contextualize happening. things if you could if you knew how much I, I, yeah. I do think there was uh I'm trying to remember now, but I think during last year's playoffs when there was less games, so they had open channels, Sportsnet did have a second feed, maybe it was online. You could watch the game with that kind of analytic information like presented the entire time. And I think that there's definitely a space for the growth of that in other sports. And as Elliot said, I think the big thing that if I was running the NHL or if I was running, frankly, any other sports league, but especially a league, like let's say the CFL, where you are struggling to develop an audience. uh, I would be looking at what F1 has done from like the big, broad perspective, not the specifics of saying the CFL needs a Netflix show, but mm-hmm. more specifically, mm-hmm. what was the outcome of the Netflix show? And I think it's about building characters. It's about building a relationship with fan or consumer and product and yeah. drama, athlete, right? right? Drama. And you care about it. We know who Christian Horner is. We know who Toto Wolf is. We've, yeah. we've learned who these people are and obviously you know some of them with the bigger personalities get more screen time like a reality tv show that's fine but it works in their favor because it's marketing right why is well, red bull the sports energy drink literally uh, the, the the owner of a, of a team because this is a marketing exercise is just as any yeah. sport is um but it works really really well and people want like i've said so many times and i believe this so strongly in my core that the reason sports matter is because they hold an opportunity for our society to create community. And they, that what they do is they offer people a a feeling of, I belong to this team. I cheer for and support this team, or I cheer for and support this player. And there are other people out there like me who also care about this and we can Mm -hmm. talk about it and we can invest energy and time and money in it. And there's, there's the economy of sport, but there's also like the, the emotional economy of sport and the energy that surrounds it, the community of sport, whether you're a hockey fan or you're just an Euler fan, whether you're an F1 fan or you're a motorsports fan, maybe you watch NASCAR too, whatever it is, what this sport has done a great job of in the last couple of years, as Elliot said, building its stock up by investing the emotional part of the storytelling in this, right? It's 20 teams, it's 20 drivers. They're all, you know, competing under some form of the same rules. It is not an even playing field. That's part of the drama, but we're figuring it out and we're watching race into race. Anything can possibly happen. And it's great drama. It's great. It's, it's just awesome. So yeah. Anyway, I'm really glad we talked F1 on the show. Braden and I will be back after next uh, race in Qatar. Uh, we have three races left. Verstappen just narrowly holding off Lewis at this point, but I think it's very clear coming out of this weekend that if the if, if it comes down to 
straight line speed. The Mercedes has them. And, and if uh, Red Bull has, has anything left up their sleeve, it's time to pull it out because Lewis Hamilton's chasing his eighth championship. He would best Michael Schumacher and, and be the greatest of all time. I just wanted to say one more thing, Elliot. You were absolutely right when you said this probably is the greatest rivalry the sport has ever seen. We have seen some amazing ones. You've got Alan Prost and Senna. You've got Michael Schumacher and Hakkinen. You've got James Hunt and, and Nicky Lauder. That's the one that Ron Howard made a movie about. Um, even Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill in, in the late 90s. But the truth is that, I mean, and then there's Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg when they were both in the same team and hated each other. That was an awesome rivalry. But there's something about this rivalry and how you've got two different generations, Lewis Hamilton, who is the sort of one of the last guys of the old guard, again, chasing that eighth championship. And now you have this young kid in, in Max Verstappen, who's the second generation chasing, um, chasing them down. And if he wins it, you know, it will be very special to see. And then next year, the question is, can he, can he get one more or is Lewis Hamilton ready to come back for another one? But either way, great drama, great drama. Thank you both for joining uh, me this week. Awesome conversations. And we will be back next week with even more. That was Hattrick. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.